This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Since its inception, the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, DHS, has undertaken numerous reviews and reorganizations in an ongoing effort to increase the department's efficiency and effectiveness in managing its wide-ranging, complex mission set. In April of 2014, Secretary of Homeland Security, Jed Johnson, directed DHS leadership to make several key changes to, quote, transparently incorporate DHS components into unified decision-making process and the analytic efforts that inform decision-making. The Secretary indicated that the overarching goal of this new effort is twofold, to deepen understanding of the DHS mission space and to empower the Department's components to effectively execute their operations. Over the last year, DHS has pursued this unity of effort against the backdrop of challenges such as tightening budgets, low morale, and complex oversight structures. What are the strategic priorities for DHS? How is the DHS Unity of Effort initiative going? And what is DHS doing to improve its operational performance? We will explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Ali Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Ali, welcome back to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you very much for having me. It's delightful to see you. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tom Coleman. Tom, welcome to the show. Thanks. Ali, what is the mission of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, and how has that mission evolved to date? Would you describe your role and responsibilities as the DHS Deputy Secretary? Uh, simply put, um, Michael, the, the mission of the department is to keep the homeland safe, uh, to ensure uh, the security of our residents, as well as the security of our values. And I say that because uh, what I've learned in the role of the deputy secretary is that we are the only department that has a statutorily provided independent office of civil rights and civil liberties and an office of privacy. And given our mission set, uh, the importance of, of those offices cannot be overstated. And so um, uh, our mission is to protect the homeland and to protect uh, uh, our residents throughout the country. That has been a a very dynamic uh, process and it's a constantly evolving process as the threats, natural and man-made, evolve uh, constantly. What would you say are your top three management challenges that you face in your position and how are you addressing those challenges? Let me, if I can, Tom, uh, identify the first one that comes to mind. Um, 
it's unifying the efforts across uh, the department. I'm sure you have heard and others have learned of our unity of effort initiative. And I think um, bringing the different expertise uh, to bear, bringing the different devotion of resources to bear in a unified fashion to ensure that we achieve our mission most effectively as well as our the most careful stewards of our resources, I think is our greatest area of focus from a management perspective right now. And we've seen tremendous strides under the Secretary's leadership. One of the most, I think, compelling examples of that is the southern border campaign, where we've taken all of the different assets of the department that have traditionally or historically been devoted to border security and all its ancillary concerns and brought them to bear in a more unified and cohesive fashion than ever before. And so we don't necessarily have Customs and Border Protection working its mission alongside but separate from the United States Coast Guard and alongside and but separate from immigration and customs enforcement and so on and so forth. But we have the, all of those resources brought to to bear in a coordinated, holistic way. I think its impact will be far greater and the the proper allocation of resources will be more effective. Mm -hmm. It's really a transformational effort, if I may. Were there any other challenges that you – I mean, that's that's a big challenge, isn't it? So that's one uh, big challenge. I would say uh, doing more uh, with less. Uh In a uh, in a constantly um, uh, challenging uh, bu- a budget environment is a significant uh, a challenge as well. So, Ali, I've had the pleasure of having you on the show three times and in different capacities. But I'm interested since you've taken over as DepSec of DHS, what has surprised you most? I think the breadth uh, of the work of the Department of Homeland Security is um, uh, a, a great surprise. I. I I read of it, <laughs> uh, I knew of it, mm-hmm. but I didn't live it uh, as much as I do now. And if one takes a look at the challenges we've faced, put aside the successes, which are many, but if one takes a look at the challenges we face, the unexpected events of the past year or so, take Ebola, oh, yeah. for example, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, tragic uh, phenomenon that afflicted three African nations so severely was front and center in our portfolio of work for quite some period of time because we were the front line of screening individuals that travelers from the three countries uh, in Africa. And so we devoted considerable effort and energy given our mission set uh, to that phenomenon. If you had asked me three years ago mm-hmm. what um, what role the department would play in response to the Ebola crisis, I probably would have answered somewhere on the periphery, but but not so learning uh, what our department does. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, I, I think it's just a, a fascinating uh, breath. It's, it's both a challenge and an incredible opportunity. So prior to becoming deputy secretary, you ran a major component of DHS. I'd like for you to give a little bit of background of yourself and more more particularly, what about your leadership style and management approach? So a little bit about your background and maybe a little bit about your leadership. So I have been, uh, I appreciate that, Michael. Um, I've been in different leadership positions in my career. 
uh, and let me let me focus, if I may, on the public sector. When I was an assistant U.S. attorney, I in, in a career position, I became the chief of the general crime section, which was training all new assistant United States attorneys. And I learned then that the most uh, important thing a leader can do is equip, enable, and empower uh, one's people. And I've taken that approach and applied it in my, uh, in my different uh, positions at USCIS uh, as a steward of change mm -hmm. uh, and in the Department of Homeland Security. What are the key strategic priorities for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security? We will ask Ali Mayorkas, its Deputy Secretary, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is the Center of This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Joining us on the Center This Week is our very special guest, General Anthony Zinni, former commander of the U.S. Central Command. General Zinni, welcome. Thank you. General Zinni, shifting the emphasis of U.S. foreign policy from one that relies heavily on military might to one that elevates the value of diplomacy development will take strong leadership, a decisive strategy, and ample resources to ensure its success. Would you elaborate on the specific organizational and operational changes required for the U.S. to be successful in this area? And how does uh, your civilian affairs command concept factor into this process? I think that this has become a significant issue. We can no longer resolve everything with just the military. The battlefields of today are very complex, and they have issues that go beyond just the security requirement. We should have learned that from Vietnam on. And so the military has felt very strongly that we need partners on the battlefield that work the political, the economic, the social conditions that take place. In many of the conflicts today, the military dimension is not enough in, in and of itself if it's resolved to settle the situation. It used to be you can handle these sorts of things sequentially, take care of the military business first, defeat the bad guys, you know, capture the capital, remove the regime, and then get on with reconstruction. Reconstruction begins now just as the boots cross the line of departure. We do a great job, our military does, I think, in being able to handle their part of the action. It's the other parts that are far inadequate, and some of that has to do with funding and resources and organization. Some of it has to do with the culture. You have a military that, for example, are, are exceptional planners. I don't see that in the other dimensions. There's a, there's a question of scope and scale. Our military is capable of operating on a large scale, defeating national threats, coalition threats. I don't see we have the capacity to rebuild societies on that scale. Even going back to World War II, it was the military fundamentally in Japan and Germany. They got saddled with this. The, the military becomes stuck with this problem of rebuilding a, 
I, I look at what General Petraeus did in, in Iraq and elsewhere. It falls to the military. We see the failures of the civilian side. I think the CPA, the Coalition Provisional Authority, its predecessor, the, the organization that was sent in was way undermanned did not have the competence, the manning level, the understanding of the culture, the history, the planning that would have had to go into reconstructing an Iraq or an Afghanistan. I don't see in the cultures of the State Department, USAID, and other institutions that uh, that they're able to handle that scope. They're able to do the detailed plans. What shocked me when I was a commander of CENTCOM, I was required to build war plans. I had them for places like Iraq. I certainly, when I was involved in Korea, I saw the Korean, obviously the Korean war plan. I don't see the the counterpart plans for reconstructing of societies after a conflict. When we get engaged in at any level, whether it's a very low intensity or very high intensity, I don't see the planning and the effort going in. I tried as the commander of CENTCOM to engage these other organizations in, in doing this and uh, just did not find that they had the resources and, frankly, the will to engage and the, the background, the understanding. Uh, I was involved in a policy advisory group to uh, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Senator Luger and then Senator Biden uh, had co-chaired our group uh, to look at what we needed to do to create this kind of a total organization when we got involved in these uh, kinds of situations. And, you know, it was frustrating because nobody saw that you could change the bureaucracy. Uh, Wisely, I don't think the senators wanted to commit resources to something that wasn't going to materially improve the other side. And I, and I would just say, you know, as sort of an end point to this, we will leave Iraq and we will build a tremendous security force in Iraq. You will see an Iraqi military with a security assistance program that will be worth millions, if not billions. We'll rebuild the, the, the military services there. We'll rebuild the police forces. I don't see the same kind of investment that goes into the political institutions, the economic institutions, the social institutions, which are critically important. The scale is not there. Look around the world and look where our security assistance programs are, how much is invested in them, how expensive they are, uh, how much people we commit to them and the scope and scale. I look at the current situation in Libya and elsewhere. We're ready and willing and, and quick to provide military aid. Where is the aid in helping the opposition structure itself, organize itself, understand what it has to do to create a viable political movement, political parties, a democratic process? Where is the investment in rebuilding or building economic systems that will sustain the community, helping them with social reform, uh, improving a lot of women and, and doing the kinds of things that allow them to enjoy the fruits of modernity and enter the 21st century? I don't see the counterparts, and that's what really worries me. Well, thank you, General. It's a wonderful insight, and I really appreciate you being with us on the Center this week. Thank you. I appreciate it. It was great being with you. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Center report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. 
These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward. For government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today, download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ali Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Also joining us from IBM is Tom Coleman. The 2014 uh, Quadrennial Homeland Security Review is the second issued since the inception of the department. How has the strategic environment evolved from the first uh, QSHR uh, to the latest review? And what are some of the takeaways um, so we are on an ever-evolving landscape. And let me uh, cite two examples. And what that evolution has brought is a refinement of the QHSR mm-hmm. in our strategic planning and our execution. Two um, examples that are um, front-page examples, if I may. Mm-hmm. One is the evolving threat uh, landscape. It was but... 18 months ago, where we were looking at really the foreign fighter phenomenon and seeking to address that in the most effective way. That, of course, remains a very uh, significant concern, but we, to an increasing degree, we have also focused our attention on the homegrown violent extremists. And, of course, the three of us are speaking uh, at a time, you know, in in the wake of the the tragedy in Charleston, which is an extremism of one particular uh, nature. But the idea focusing on uh, ISIL, if I may, in particular, their use of social media to try to motivate individuals here in the United States to take action without ever having to leave the United States and fight in Syria or Iraq is a phenomenon that we have increased our focus to to address. And so the evolving terrorist landscape has informed our strategic planning uh, significantly. We are uh, very devoted uh, to countering violent extremism here uh, uh, domestically, and the secretary is quite a leader uh, in that area as he is in all the areas uh, of our work. The interplay between um, cyber mm-hmm. security and our critical infrastructure Uh, The interdependency there is a constantly evolving, a growing phenomenon, and we've had to shape our cyber strategy and our protection of critical infrastructure accordingly, and we're actually uh, making changes now uh, to our organizational structure to better capture uh, that interplay. And so uh, the QHSR, I think, is a – while it's a constitutional document, if you will, a a strategic document, it has to capture the ever-evolving landscape uh, of the world in which we uh, live and that we focus on. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned the unity of effort yes. that Secretary Johnson uh, commenced when he took over. And uh, I was wondering if you could uh, sort of dig deeper a little bit into that, maybe the four lines uh, of, of this effort. What are the four main lines that it's focusing in on? What exactly is it doing to date? What's the status? And what's your role in championing it? So um, 
the the unity of effort is, as I've described, mm-hmm. uh, an effort to take a mission set mm-hmm. that draws upon the resources and and focus of different parts of the department and make sure that those different parts of the department are working in coordination with one another in a unified uh, way to address that single mission uh, challenge. My role is to help oversee Mm -hmm. uh, that effort along with partners within uh, the department and to uh, execute the unity of effort. And we meet on this regularly with all of the component Uh, representatives and all of the office representatives to make sure that we are, in fact, um, unifying uh, our efforts. Let me give you a – I I mentioned earlier the the southern border uh, campaign. Let me me give you, if I can, an example that's um, uh, not as breathtaking Mm -hmm. in scope and walk you very quickly through how meaningful it can be. We have different – resources in terms uh, in the department uh, on uh, aviation, um, air resources, uh, aircraft resources specifically. Coast Guard Mm -hmm. has uh, aircraft, as does Customs and Border Protection. Well, have we looked at what are the interplay of those resources, both in terms of the requirements Uh, both in terms of the use and the deployment? Have we analyzed whether they can uh, merge their purchasing processes, their requirements development processes, and perhaps even their deployment processes? And so that's a very specific aspect of our work, and we're taking a look to make sure that when we buy an aircraft, it's an aircraft that we as the department need, not just one component versus another. And the requirements that we need to establish for that purchase are established in a way that serves the department as a whole and not just one component versus another. The analysis may yield different processes for different components, but that will be deliberate Mm-hmm. <laughs> and informed and not otherwise. What, what are the challenges that you're – high-level challenges that you're faced trying to pull together or create that identity around 22 disparate organizations as one unified mission? There is a uh, maturity of process okay. within each component and the unified effort is less mature than the stovepiped way. Mm-hmm. And so breaking down those barriers – and bringing change is um, uh, is 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 always challenging, because it 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 requires um, one stepping out of one of what one knows how to do extraordinarily well, mm-hmm. and embarking upon a very new process. But I think, quite frankly, uh, we've we've achieved a unity of endorsement, uh, if I may, uh, 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 of, of the process because everyone understands its benefits. DHS must be able to harness vast amounts of data to make informed decision-making and future planning. Would you tell us more about the department's four-year analytic agenda? How does it provide the foundation for tackling so-called big data challenge while also supporting analytic-informed decision-making? So let me, uh, let me if I can call upon something I articulated um, uh, early on, and that is, you know, big data analytics brings probably a a very diverse reaction 
in the community、uh, with different levels of electricity、uh, and, and, and vigor. We are, I think, distinguishable. In our use of big data in one important way. And, and if I may call upon again the fact that we have an Office of Civil Rights and Civil Liberties and an Office of Privacy, and we're extraordinarily vigilant in, in how we address big data analytics, the challenges and promises it presents, and safeguarding our, or securing our values. As well as we、uh, secure、uh, the safety of our residents. We use data very effectively in、uh, quite a number of our mission spaces. Let me give you a perfect example travelers. It is through the analysis of data that we are able to determine. Whether someone who wishes to do us harm is intending to and trying to travel to the United States. Or,、uh, on the other hand, to some extent, whether someone here is seeking to travel outside of the United States for an illegal purpose. And I think the work that Customs and Border Protection,、uh, Transportation Security Administration, in our aviation security realm, the way they deal with data and analyze it is an extraordinarily effective example、uh, of the importance of data collection and analytics in a way that is consistent. With our founding principles. What are DHS's plans regarding a digital services unit? We know that DHS has been an early adopter of using the US digital services, in particular at USCIS, your former role. How does DHS plan to create their own digital service unit, or are they going to rely on the more corporate White House US digital services unit? So I would say, Tom, it's, it's both. One,、uh, we have、uh, digital services personnel who are really Remarkable in their talent and dedication. We have digital service personnel embedded in the Department of Homeland Security in、um, increasing areas,、um, uh, growing areas,、uh, to bring their、uh, private sector expertise to bear for the benefit of our department.、Uh, they are at, for example, USCIS. Uh, working on its transformation effort, moving it from a paper base to an online environment.、Uh, we are using them、uh, in the immigration、uh, space for the collection and analysis and publication of immigration data to achieve one of the Secretary's objectives、uh, that he announced in November, on November 20th of last year to bring greater transparency. To the work that we do in the immigration area. At the same time, that's a skill set that we have to have in permanent residence、uh, at the department, and so we're building、uh, that core. One example is the Office of Immigration Statistics, where we're recruiting that type of talent on a full time basis in, in our department. So let's still continue with the immigration conversation. And then less about statistics, less about analytics, and more about the reform agenda. Could you tell us a little bit about where it is right now and what the vision is to sort of、uh, the immigration reform area? So let me, if I、uh, can, my,、uh, Michael, break it down into,、mm-hmm. into two parts. One is, of course, legislative reform,、yeah. which is the reform that、uh, the president has 
continuously articulated is the most important because it's the most lasting and it's a it's a system that requires permanent change and the president as well as the secretary remain stead- steadfast in their view that legislative change uh, is necessary what the president and the secretary have done in the absence of legislative change is to utilize the president's executive authority to bring whatever change can be effected uh, through that means. And while some of those executive actions have been enjoined uh, by the Fifth Circuit in a um, a very well-known litigation, quite a number of changes uh, have not been uh, enjoined and, in fact, have not been challenged through the courts. The secretary has brought uh, greater clarity, uh, simplicity, and meaning to the manner in which we execute our immigration enforcement uh, regime. He's ensured that our limited resources are used most effectively to safeguard our national security and our public safety. And that has been a very significant change, um, and um, uh, we're executing uh, on that. He has taken uh, the economic immigration uh, agenda and made very important changes in the economic sphere that have not been uh, enjoined and that make a meaningful difference. For example, we compete with other nations for high-skilled labor. One of the ways in which we were losing to other nations was that other nations were willing to allow the spouses of high-skilled labor to um, gain employment in the uh, receiving country. We traditionally did not. Uh, We have since promulgated under the secretary's direction, promulgated regulations that allow the spouses of high-skilled workers to work in the United States so that we attract those high-skilled workers in, in, to a greater uh, degree. And so our regulatory and executive action reform is well underway despite uh, some of it being enjoined and uh, always with the hope that the legislature will act to bring uh, along the sweeping change that our broken immigration system needs. What is DHS doing to enhance its operations? We will ask Ali Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Center Report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition by Trevor Brown and find out. 
The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out that the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Ali Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Also joining us from IBM is Tom Coleman. Counterterrorism is a cornerstone of DHS's mission. To that end, what are you doing to enhance the department's efforts in this area? What is specifically being done to safeguard critical infrastructure and implement a layered security on land, air, and sea to combat any terrorist threat? So the, the Secretary has articulated, Tom, uh, repeatedly that, in fact, the counterterrorism remains a cornerstone of the Department of Homeland Security. And we have expanded our risk-based approach to safeguarding our nation's security, and we have prioritized the counterterrorism uh, mission even more than it was uh, before. We are bringing changes to the different agencies uh, that execute this mission set, some because of deficiencies that have come to light, um, uh, other changes uh, because of, quite frankly, the self-study that we have embarked upon and the changes that we um, uh, believe uh, are are needed. Uh, one takes a look at the counterterrorism mission. One takes a look at the, the rise uh, in concern uh, of the homegrown violent extremism, and we are pressing forward on countering violent extremism and our strategy there. And the secretary is personally uh, involved in, in that effort, visiting cities across the nation and speaking with communities to break down uh, barriers and, and work with uh, all community partners uh, in this shared effort uh, because a shared effort is, is what is needed. So we are, we are very focused on that. So, Ali, Tom mentioned counterterrorism. I'd like to talk about the border and secure the border. And what are, maybe perhaps you could highlight some of the key efforts, such as the U.S. border, southern border and approaches campaign planning effort. What, what are you doing to secure and manage the border? What's some of the innovative things that you're doing there? So the uh, two things come immediately to mind, uh, Michael, in response to your question. One is the the campaign itself, the Southern Border and Approaches Campaign and the Secretary's uh, vision for a unified effort across the department to, gr- to bring greater security to the border. The second is the notion uh, that uh, – or approach, I should say, that – it's not a one-size-fits-all answer to border security. What works in one part of the border may not necessarily work in another. And I've traveled uh, the border. Uh, the secretary has visited the border uh, repeatedly during his tenure. And what one sees is uh, very different landscapes from one place to another. In one part of Arizona with uh, jagged cliffs – that presents a different challenge for us in guarding against illegal immigration there mm-hmm. than does the Rio Grande Valley. And Customs and Border Protection has, taking, uh, has been taking an increasingly innovative approach to the dynamism of the border and the, uh, the theory that uh, the one-size-fits-all doesn't work. And so they invest in 
the development of and deploy different technologies and different tools depending on what is best suited for the challenge in a particular area. In one area, it may be personnel. Mm -hmm. In another area, it may be a wall. In another area, it may be uh, fixed towers, or in another area, it may be mobile uh, towers. And in yet another area, it may be unmanned aerial surveillance and the technology that is attendant to that. And they've done an extraordinary job in deploying that multidimensional approach. And the secretary uh, just a, a couple weeks ago gave a speech that was supported by uh, data uh, to demonstrate that the border is more secure now than it ever has been before. One of the indicia of our border security is the number of apprehensions uh, of individuals seeking to cross illegally, and apprehensions are down, I think, approximately 60 percent. So, you know, we talk about counterterrorism, the border, and now cybersecurity, cyberspace, securing cyberspace. You just need to see the headlines and know that this is really becoming a significant issue. And I'd like to get your perspective from the department of what you're doing to build a capacity in the department to tackle cybersecurity and, and, and to build that capacity in DHS, but also to expand that capacity through a whole-of-government approach. What do you do in this area? So there, there are different layers of a response there. Mm -hmm. One is, of course, within the department itself and our department's cybersecurity. We have a, a superb uh, chief information security officer who is working to uh, secure our networks and also, quite frankly, secure our practices mm -hmm. because the cyber awareness, cybersecurity awareness of a practitioner with a computer or mobile device is critical. How often does one change one's passwords? How well does one know not to click on an unknown uh, email um, uh, and the like? Is, you know, the, the importance of that cannot be overstated. So we have uh, ongoing daily efforts to enhance our own cybersecurity. We are uh, the agency that is at the forefront of securing the .gov environment. We have been provided uh, through legislation and through executive order uh, with tools to achieve uh, that goal. And the secretary, just within the past few weeks, issued the first operational directive, binding operational directive to other government departments and agency with respect to the need for them to take certain steps to enhance their cybersecurity. And that's of critical importance in terms of protecting the .gov space. Then by virtue of our unique position as a civilian uh, department as distinguished from an enforcement or intelligence department, though of course we have roles in those spheres of activity uh, and concern as well, we are the primary, a primary interface with the dot-com environment, the private sector. And one of the big areas that we are pushing forward on is information sharing. Will the private sector share information with us so that we can collect it, get a, obtain a, a, a clear understanding of what is going on in the cyber arena across the country, and then push out information to all? So let me, if I can, mm -hmm. bring some uh, visualization to that. You, Michael, run one company, and Tom, 
you run another. And Tom, you've been the subject of a cyber attack. Well, if I receive the information from you as to what the threat indicators are regarding uh, that attack, then I can push that out so that your fellow uh, companies in the in the private sector, including yours, Michael, learn of those threat indicators so that you could build your defense to recognize those threat indicators and keep them out. Mm-hmm. And if if then I have information from both of you, I can further inform companies three, four, five, and six, and so on and so forth, and provide essentially what one of our um, uh, visionaries calls a weather map of what is going on in the cybersecurity realm in the dot-com environment, and we can host the receipt of that information and push it out to elevate the collective uh, cyber hygiene. DHS is implementing a number of efforts to improve employee productivity and morale. What are some of the innovative approaches that you're implementing and experimenting with, and what has been the reaction to them? Um, we, we have a number of efforts uh, underway that are responsive to the very concerns that our employees have voiced in surveys and through other means. For example, um, transparency in the hiring and promotion process, training in professional development, training being equipping individuals to do the jobs that they are currently executing, professional development uh, being giving them the tools to do the jobs to which they aspire and the opportunities. And so we're doing some of those as we speak, and we've been uh, executing on those efforts for several months. I think one of the things, one of the broader efforts that we have underway uh, that takes time to implement is enhancing our employee engagement. How much do uh, managers and supervisors and leaders communicate with the people whom they lead, manage, and supervise, as opposed to being very occupied, and understandably so, with their own responsibilities uh, uh, through the chain of command. And we are uh, developing a culture of engagement We've been at it for a little while, but we're still at really the inception stage. To change culture takes time, and we also have to change our accountability architecture, our performance management architecture to really make it uh, meaningful. Uh, I think that our efforts are being appreciated. The secretary and I engage with the the workforce, I think, um, hopefully in unprecedented fashion, and that's not a reflection on what Uh, preceded us, but rather um, a reflection of our ambitions for the future. But it takes time. And it takes time in a world uh, where we also uh, confront challenges that impact uh, morale adversely. Not too long ago, we were struggling to have a budget. We were the only department that was struggling at the end of the day to have a budget. And when people don't know whether or not they're going to be able to meet their mortgage, that's going to impact morale adversely. Well, I'd like to talk about your efforts as Deputy Secretary uh, to sort of move the department off the government accountability high-risk list. I mean, given the size, breadth, and depth of your mission, it's no, no, no wonder that it appeared on this list. What are you doing? What's the status to date? And how are you positioning DHS with your work with GAO to be sort of like the, uh, the role model for other agencies that find themselves in this situation? 
A, a few things, uh, Michael. One, uh, GAO recognized us as a model in addressing the high-risk challenges. That was articulated expressly in its uh, last report. Um, and uh, we're very proud of that. And we could not do it without the tremendous work of our people, but quite frankly, without the tremendous leadership in GAO, both with respect to its uh, Comptroller General, um, Gene Dodaro, and the individual who uh, oversees our portfolio, uh, George Scott. They are tremendous partners. They hold our feet to the fire with respect to the challenges that we have, but they call balls and strikes with respect to the work that we're doing effectively and the work that we're not. Uh, I became very, very involved in addressing the GAO high-risk items because of their critical nature uh, to the development of our department and the well-being of our department. And I met with our team. I looked at our timelines, and I asked the, the first question I asked was, how can these timelines be accelerated? Because we're talking about matters that are not only high risk but critical in nature. And uh, our team doubled down, and, and we accelerated quite a number uh, of our timelines, and we worked very closely with GAO to address the challenges. It, it requires a lot of investment, a lot of investment of expertise in human capital, and it requires a close partnership with GAO, and we've enjoyed all of the above. Now, you mentioned partnerships, and I want to get to that. How are you leveraging partnerships uh, and collaboration to improve management operations and program outcomes as DevSec? So the partnerships within the department, mm-hmm. uh, I think, fall within the rubric of unity of effort. And we established a new mechanism called the Deputies Management Action Group. Okay. Yeah. Uh, it, the, everything in the government has an acronym. This is <laughs> the DMAG, D-M-A-G. I'm glad you spelled that out. Yeah. And, and we, bring everybody, we bring everybody together, and we're meeting right now at a, a pretty frequent clip. Uh, last week, we met twice. Uh, we're meeting again because of um, uh, we're addressing some of our financial uh, and, and, and budget challenges and how we can best use the resources of the department to achieve our priorities within the government. Then uh, the, one of the key areas of focus is our partnership in the private sector because we are engaged, for example, in research and development. The private sector's research and development efforts should be in parallel we should be coordinating, and so we've brought a lot greater amount of transparency to our work there. We had a very significant industry day where we talked about our acquisition strategy, our acquisition process, and brought um, and, and really en- enabled the private sector to provide feedback, uh, not only for their awareness, but also for our learning and our improvement. And working in a more transparent environment with the private sector, I think, is, a, is critical to partnership. Technology and Homeland Security are inextricably linked. What is DHS doing to keep pace with technology? How is it leveraging research and development towards achieving those Homeland Security goals? Our leader of our science and technology uh, office, uh, Dr. Reggie Brothers, is really leaning forward in assessing uh, our research and development efforts our use of and development of technology to make sure that they are more closely tied to our operational needs. We have had, uh, I would say, two components of R&D, one tied to operations and one, uh, I think, divorced from that is too, uh, too strong a term, but not necessarily as 
inextricably intertwined with operations as we need. And, and Dr. Brothers is bringing greater rigor to make sure that our operational plans and our operational needs and tempo are synced up with our R&D efforts. He also, similar to the point I just made, he also is pushing out to work more closely and more transparently with the private sector. He comes from DOD, where the R&D machinery and apparatus is much more mature than in the Department of Homeland Security. And so he's bringing that confidence uh, to bear in our department. Given your distinguished career in public service, what advice would you give someone who's contemplating going into public service? Do it, in a, in a nutshell. And I'll tell you uh, why. Um, because the privilege of serving uh, the nation uh, is an extraordinary, extraordinarily fulfilling privilege. Ali, that's terrific advice. I want to thank you for joining us today. But more importantly, Tom and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thanks so much. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Ali Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. My co-host from IBM has been Tom Coleman. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Federal agencies and academics have long discussed the importance of cross-agency collaboration. But recent changes in law and advances in technology have led to a new environment that makes cross-agency management far more achievable. What two dimensions are necessary for effective collaboration? And how can agency leaders and OMB foster cross-agency collaboration as a way of doing business? Today we'll explore these questions and so much more with Dr. Jane Fountain author of the IBM Center Report, Implementing Cross-Agency Collaboration, a Guide for Federal Managers. Uh, Jane, your report outlines two types of recommendations, those directed at policymakers and those directed to help managers and agencies engaged in implementing cross-cutting collaborative initiatives. I'd like to explore those recommendations. Would you identify and briefly describe the recommendations you offer to the Office of Management and Budget? Okay. This report makes five recommendations to the Office of Management and Budget. First, OMB can be very helpful by developing management guidance for cross-agency collaboration. And this is guidance that agencies could use to begin to understand the process, to begin to capture an existing body of knowledge that has grown up among many different projects and that can be brought together. In this regard, OMB could produce templates for shared budgets, for example. Uh, now, I don't mean just one template because there might be 
different models, variation that needs to be captured. So by producing a sort of toolkit, management guidance for agencies, we could start to share some of the accumulated experience that has been developed over the years. The second recommendation to OMB is that OMB officials should continue to play two different types of roles, facilitator and enforcer. During the Bush administration, there were a number of cross-agency projects that were uh, more modest in some ways than the cap goal projects. OMB surprisingly began to play a role as a facilitator in many of these collaborations by disseminating promising practices, by disseminating innovations, by bringing parties together. But there were times when OMB played its maybe more stereotypical role as an enforcer by moving a group beyond some impasse and forcing parties, frankly, to do things that they otherwise might not have done without that enforcement role. The third recommendation is for political appointees at OMB and in the agencies to continue to engage with key members of Congress and congressional staff because this implementation of the GIPRA Modernization Act is going to require continued deliberation and continued discussion between OMB and uh, the Congress. The fourth recommendation to OMB is uh, that they continue to search for ways to build once, use many. This is a term that Mark Foreman, the first CIO of the federal government, used. And what it means is to identify systems and infrastructure and processes that have already been developed in some agency and to see how they might be used in multiple and different implementations. So one quick example, some of the code, some of the software and systems developed for electronic rulemaking have been in the last year or so modified to help develop the new Freedom of Information Act online system, specifically the way that that system will track FOIA requests and their status as they move through agencies. So this reuse can save a great deal of money as well as time. And then the fifth recommendation is that OMB work with the Office of Personnel Management and with agencies to start um, building uh, cross-agency skills and skill sets into performance evaluation for the senior executive service. If we're serious about government executives being able to work across agencies, they need to be selected, measured, evaluated, perhaps promoted on the basis of how well they can do that. Jane, for executives who are assigned to build a major cross-agency effort, how can they do it successfully and what recommendations do you offer in this area? Well, here we're these recommendations really recap a lot of what is in the the body of the report. What should cross-agency leaders do? First, set and communicate clear, compelling direction and goals. It's, It's not enough to state these at the outset. They need to be continually restated throughout these projects and throughout these efforts to keep people focused on goals. Second, fit the structure of the working group to the task. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution here. 
different divisions of labor, different types of procedures and task environments are better suited to some problems than others. And so some attention to that that set of systems and procedures is important. Cross-agency leaders should establish clear roles and responsibilities. People have to know who will do what, who's responsible for what parts of the project. They should develop formal agreements. Now, it's important not to try to jump to codification right away. There needs to be a period of deliberation, of uh, the parties getting to know one another, of discussing what it is they're going to do and how they're going to do it. But at some point, those agreements really need to be formalized. And there should be enough flexibility in the agreement that they can revisit those documents and make changes when they're needed. Um, Another recommendation is to develop these shared operations and shared resources. Uh, So it's not enough to have interpersonal skills. You have to have capacity building skills, system building skills, um, especially if you're working broadly across agencies. And then finally, we have to have performance metrics that can reach across agencies. So cross-agency collaboration projects will have a set of metrics that will go with them so that you can track and monitor and measure uh, output and outcomes. So Jane, what prompted your research in this area? And could you tell us more about how you conducted your research for the report and who participated and why? Well, this report, it actually draws on, on many years of interviewing managers in, uh, from uh, the very top of the government to mid-level managers working on how do we develop this shared bit of code so that our software will work across agencies. I interviewed managers and over several years have observed at fairly close range a number of cross-agency projects. Some of these projects began during the Clinton administration with the reinventing government effort, and they've morphed, they've changed and modified and refined over time and over successive administrations. I want to say that I, I really admire and I have a deep respect for the civil servants and the government managers and executives who've been forging a path really to a new information age government. In some cases, I met these people through executive programs that I've taught in. In others, I learned of their innovations and sought them out. In other cases, they sought me out for guidance. So a lot of the the collection of information here drew on a wide range of studies, but also on sort of firsthand observations and discussions with the people who are actually building this, this new modernization of government. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. What is the mission of GSA's FedSim? What are its strategic priorities? How does FedSim work with federal agencies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Chris Hamm, Director, Federal Systems Integration and Management Center, FedSim. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM.